Welcome to the Demystifying Diversity podcast, where every week we explore topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm Daryl Lyons. And I'm Anna Marie Jones. So on alternating weeks, we're going to conduct a question and answer episode based on the previous week's podcast. Today, we're talking about a very important subject, the deadly effect of systemic racism. If you haven't listened to last week's episode, Black and Blue, an exploration of the inequities in a broken criminal justice system, please stop now, go back and listen. It'll be really helpful to hear those interviews before listening to us delve any deeper into the topic. Exactly. And if you have listened to last week's episode, you'll know that we spoke to people who have personal and professional experiences of how, in this country, the impacts of systemic racism have led to the widespread incarceration of so many Black and Brown Americans. Right. And so many senseless deaths. I know. The media has been talking more, Darylise, about this topic, these issues. And people are taking a stand. But in many ways, it's kind of a little too late. I I hate to be pessimistic. But when I think about Ahmaud Arbery going for a jog only to be hunted down and murdered by racists, or Breonna Taylor being killed in her own apartment by police showing up in unmarked cars in plain clothes. Then, you know, there was also George Floyd getting kneed to death by a corrupt cop. My stomach just turns and I get so nauseated. It's so horrible. And frankly, Anna-Marie, I know that you and I have been aware of these issues for a long, long time, really our whole lives. But it seems like the nation is only now waking up to the fact that American society has criminalized Blackness for as far back as, as we can remember, even dating back to before slavery. I mean, that's part of what enabled slavery to happen. And it's just staggering that people are just now becoming aware of it. Yeah. And, you know, I, I always, you know, refer back to experiences that I know, stories that my dad shared with me. And, you know, when he was in college, he was he and his classmates were invited to one of his teacher's homes, a white female teacher, and someone called the cops on them. And this was by invitation, but they were still arrested for being at a white female person's home, his own teacher. So this topic is very close to home for me. That is so horrible. And then what, I mean, what happened? Like, did people even apologize? Was it just like considered like, oh, well, this is just par for the course or what? It was back then in the South. um, This is 1950s. It was just par for the course. They weren't legally allowed to be, um, you know, just socializing with anyone white. And they were in a white neighborhood and that just wasn't allowed. I guess they called it a noise um, situation or, in fact, yeah, like it was a a noise disturbance, they said, because they were singing. They were uh, opera majors and they were singing at this woman's home in her courtyard and people heard it and the cops showed up and they arrested them because they were black and creating noise, singing opera. <laughs> That's terrible. And, you know, it's so terrible that so many black and brown Americans will have run-ins with the criminal justice system and so many people will not make it out of that situation. I mean, I'm sure that it had 
effects on your dad. But it seemed like he was able to go on and live his life after that. And you know, so many people, that is not the case. One in 1,000 Black men, and I know you know this, will die during a police encounter. And American prisons are comprised of about 40% Black inmates, despite the fact that the U.S. population is 12% Black. So, you know, anyway, you and I could spend hours talking about this, and we have spent hours talking about this. And my hope is that last week's episode prompted listeners to talk about this and have some of these conversations. But um, yeah, I want to know, based on last week's episode, what listeners thought and whether or not they have questions for us. Well, it's exciting. We do have a lot of call-in questions this week, but before we get to that, I have some questions based on some of my research and listening to the episode. So can we cover that first? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Darylise, in the episode Black and Blue, um, you not only covered police brutality, but also wrongful and conflated convictions of Black and Brown people. So what are some of the things you learned about brutality and conflation of charges among BIPOC? that didn't make it into the episode? And can you also explain what what BIPOC is? Yeah, (laughs) I'm so glad that you asked me to do that because I was thinking like, well, many people might not know that term. So BIPOC is an acronym that stands for Black, Indigenous, and People of Color. Um, And it's it's a phrase and a term that if people really start delving deeply into anti-racism advocacy and start learning more about this subject, they'll hear that term a lot. So um, yeah, but in terms of what you asked, Anna-Marie, it's pervasive, wrongful and conflated convictions. According to the Innocence Project, two to five percent of people who are serving time in prisons have been wrongfully convicted. And that tends to be disproportionately people of color who are wrongfully convicted. And I know that two to five percent might seem like a small statistic, but it is not at all insignificant. I mean, if you think about the lives of people being put behind bars for crimes that they did not commit, um, you know, crimes that they're not guilty of. And you think about the impact that that has on that person's life and on their families and their loved ones and their careers that they don't get to have and experiences that they don't get to be a part of. It's devastating. And it that number, that two to 5% number of people, equates to approximately 40,000 individuals. So 40,000 people are not getting to live their lives because they were wrongfully convicted for crimes that they didn't commit. And based on DNA exoneration statistics, Black and Brown Americans are so much more likely to be wrongfully convicted. And there are a number of factors that go into that. But one of them is the assumption of criminality. And another is the economic disadvantages that so many Black defendants face, you know. And I know that we kind of talked about that a little bit, the economic disadvantages and circumstances, but we could do, I mean, we could do an entire season based on that. And wrongful convictions, that's a problem, but it happens a lot less than conflated charges. Conflated charges are something that happens like all the time because of something that's called stacking charges, which is really actually common practice in so many states and municipalities. Can you define stacking charges? 
Yeah, that's a great. So essentially what happens is that law enforcement officers will arrest someone and then they have a lot of discretion as to what they charge a person for. And so in a number of areas throughout the American nation, a person will get arrested for something, you know, maybe like breaking and entering or burglary or something. And then in addition to the charge for the crime that they commit, uh, law enforcement will add, you know, a number of other kind of discretionary charges so that a person who commits an offense or is accused of committing an offense suddenly has like nine or 10 charges for the same wow. single, yeah, crime. And the pro- the huge problem, though, with this is that not only does it make a person who has committed an offense like really be more accountable than the law would otherwise have them be. But also a lot of people who maybe were innocent or didn't do what the system is accusing them of doing. I mean, if you're bumping up against nine charges for a, like, you're going to want to plead that out, right? Because people don't want to take a chance to go to court and be convicted and be in jail for 20 or 30 years for something that they could plead out and, you know, like, get out within two or three years. And often juries, when they come up against defendants who are defending against nine crimes um, for a single action, they'll decide that, oh, well, you know, this person, maybe they didn't do everything, but they have to be guilty of something, you know, if they have nine charges against them. So yeah, it's so unfair and it just disadvantages so many people. And it's so arbitrary. I mean, some places do this and other places don't. So it's really then becomes like the luck of the draws to where a person gets in trouble. Right. And not everyone can afford really good defense. So it seems like there's so much about the system that allows for discretion and it's so skewed to the advantage of white people and disadvantages people of color. Yeah. You pretty much just exactly summed up the problem. Yeah, and Senator Sharif Streets talk about the illegal use of weed by black versus white teenagers was so interesting. And I'm aware of so many people in the top 1% of earners who smoke recreational weed, and I can't imagine that they've ever had a criminal record or will ever have one. Um, you know, these tend to be upstanding law-abiding citizens who just need a way to calm down, unwind, relax and de-stress. Yeah, well You know, I think it's interesting, right? Because you said that these tend to be law-abiding citizens, but that's the point. They're not actually abiding by the law. They're breaking the law. But the law is applied differently based on race and based on socioeconomic status. And I I don't think that it's these people necessarily in the top 1% of earners who are like just smoking weed to calm down need to change. I think it's the laws that need to change. And it's so subjective. If someone who's a recreational smoker smokes in Alabama, their first offense is a misdemeanor. And then if they get caught doing it again, they're getting a felony conviction. But then, you know, someone in Colorado can smoke weed recreationally and it's like totally fine. It's completely legal. And in Connecticut, where I'm from originally, you know, a person might get their weed confiscated and have to pay a fine. But to your point, Anna-Marie, about wealth, you know, if someone doesn't have the money to pay those fines, then suddenly they're caught up in the criminal justice system for something that for someone who does have the money is like just a minor inconvenience. Yes. Not to mention that Senator Street pointed out if a white person were to get caught with weed, they would 
be more likely to get off um, versus a black person getting caught with weed on the same infraction, they would likely be arrested. So there's clearly a bias that law enforcement has towards black and brown people in poor neighborhoods. What is that all about? Yeah, well, I mean, what I really appreciated about Senator Street's interview is that he talked about how the stereotypes and the biases that disadvantage black and brown Americans, but really advantage white ones, like sometimes those biases come under the guise of actually being in the best interest of the communities that are being discriminated against. And I I think that his use of that as an example was really, really powerful because I I think there's so many people out there who consider themselves like well-meaning, good people who would say that they're not racist. But then when you really start drilling down and start looking at these systemic issues, like actually it is profoundly racist and um and based on so many false biases and misconceptions so we really have to change paradigms and dismantle these incorrect beliefs if we hope to change the system i couldn't agree more can you talk more about systemic racism and recidivism in the penal system and you know just to clarify recidivism would be the tendency of a convicted criminal to reoffend now, what does this mean for Black and Brown youth? Yeah, so it's interesting because when we're talking about recidivism or the tendency to reoffend, there's not a whole lot of information out there about like accurate information about recidivism rates. And why I say that is that even though there have been um, a number of significant studies. The, there was a big study published by the Bureau of Justice and Statistics in April 2014, and it tracked 400,000 inmates over a five-year period between 2005 and 2010. And there was another study published by the United States Sentencing Commission in March of 2016, and it tracked 25,000 plus inmates over an eight-year period. But the thing is, is that if we're looking at statistics that were, you know, from 2010 and 2013... Those are now very outdated, right? And so I, when I when we talk about recidivism, I just want to like <laughs> do it with the caveat that a lot of the figures that people will hear and a lot of the information that's released is it's often lagging like five to ten years plus behind. So it's not always like, accurate. But with that disclaimer and with that caveat, I can say that based on those studies, 68% of released prisoners were arrested within a three-year period after release, 79% were arrested within six years, and 83% were arrested within nine years. So essentially, if someone goes into prison, based on the statistics that we have currently available, it seems that within nine years like 83% of the people that are released from prison are going to go back. And there are a lot of reasons for this. For example, drug addiction is a huge reason why people commit crimes or criminal offenses. And the fact that ours is a punitive system, like if you punish someone with a mental health condition without giving them treatment or the resources to heal from and recover from a drug addiction, like 
it's inevitable almost, right, that they will continue to be addicted and and continue to commit those offenses, right? So that's like a huge one. But also prisons aren't designed to rehabilitate people. They're just not. So people go into jail and and then what? It becomes a holding tank. Like, I, I mean, you know, they're kept out of their lives. They're not able to get gainful employment. They're not able to build networks of positive support within society and create these connections. And so then they get out and can be way harder for someone with a felony record to get a job. So it's just, yeah, I mean, the system kind of creates this cycle of people being locked up and then being released and being locked up again. That said, there are a lot of studies and a lot of information that show that a person's brain after the age of 35, like people just don't commit the same offenses. They don't commit the same crimes after the age of 35. And this is true regardless of race. It's just the, you know, the nervous system calms down. People start to have better decision-making skills. But to your point of what this means for Black and Brown youth is that if a Black person or a Brown person is convicted of a minor offense early in their life and they're sent to jail, it's more than 83% likely that within a 10-year, 9 or 10-year period, they're going to go back to jail. And it's bad. I mean, we're creating the problem that we say we set out to solve. And Salah Muhammad, who I interviewed for this episode, made such an essential point, which is that he talked about how the system isn't designed to measure results or improve outcomes. And I think if people could really get more aware of that and awake to that, we would start to design a better system or at least to do a better job of interrogating the systems that we currently have. There's so much that is heartbreaking about the penal system and policing in the in this country. But I had this great interview with Superintendent Christopher Flanagan from Radnor Township. And while I was talking to him, I realized the toll that this job takes on many officers who have a hard time processing trauma that builds up for them. And since it's such a machismo type of career, they don't really like to talk about their feelings and emotions. So he shared with me that there was a suicide in the police department. And right there on the spot, I had a shift in perception about policing and officers in general. You know, I froze when he told me that mid-interview. And I was just thinking about the humanity of this one particular officer and the crazy trauma he must have been carrying that brought him to such grief, pain, and despair. If you think about it from a citizen's perspective, he wielded so much power But his own truth and experience is that he felt so vulnerable and powerless that it led him to take his own life. Yeah, right. I mean, and that's the point. You know, my heart goes out to that officer and and to others who, because the system is so traumatizing and it's painful. It's painful for everyone. Paul Reese in their interview spoke about the book Dying of Whiteness and about the prevalence of suicide. And I just, I think it's really important for people to be aware of the fact that officers are more likely to die of gun inflicted, of a self-inflicted injury, right? So suicide um, from a gun than 
anything else. So the danger of internalized unprocessed trauma um, and suicidal ideation is more dangerous to a police officer than any external danger that they might face out in the street or in the commission of their duties. And I think that when you start to look at that, it just makes it so clear that mental health interventions, trauma interventions, de-escalation training, suicide prevention, these are the things that we need to be talking about. And really helping people on all sides of the issue to understand that the current system of crime and punishment and power and victimization, it harms everybody, even those who are perceived to have power, because it's highly traumatizing, actually, to be a police officer, just as it's highly traumatizing for communities of color to have the type of interactions that many communities have had with officers of the law. Absolutely. And I think about someone like Dr. Howard Stevenson from University of Pennsylvania that we interviewed and the brilliant tools he has to help both sides, both the BIPOC and police communities. Can you talk more about him and what he shared with us about de-escalation and rehearsing? So the work that Dr. Stevenson's doing is phenomenal. And what I loved about that interview, Anna-Marie, is that Dr. Stevenson has a technique called Calculate, Locate, Communicate, Breathe, and Exhale. And he utilizes it as part of his racial literacy trainings and as part of teaching people how to bring mindfulness to racial moments and uh, de-escalate like very charged and fraught situations. So what happens in instances of police brutality or in racially charged encounters in general is that people go into a state of fight or flight, right? So they're fearful. Most times, racist acts are the mistaken or unfounded fear of one person against another. And so, like, if you apply that to these situations that happen with police officers, if a person has a bias against members of the Black community, and then they're put into a situation that is highly charged, like, you know, fearful, um, it's likely that they're not going to be capable of making a rational decision because that adrenaline is surging and they're in survival mode, even if the threat of danger is perceived and even if the threat of danger is not real. And so that's what happens when officers racially profile people of color. The nervous system doesn't know that the threat isn't real. And so Dr. Stevenson, what he does is he'll work with people mentally simulate and rehearse situations that might be charged for them, situations where their nervous system might just naturally shift into fight or flight. And as he pointed out, it's in these situations where a person is in that heightened state that they become dangerous because they can't make reasonable and logical decisions. And so uh, his technique, the technique that he uses, really teaches people to simulate those situations, feel whatever initial bias comes up, feel whatever their natural response would be, and then use mindfulness practices to calculate like, you know, to by calculate, it's like assess kind of like where they are on a scale of zero to 10 and what their feelings are. And then to locate these emotions like in their bodies or, um, 
or maybe even just like locate where these emotions come from and these perceptions come from and then communicate what's happening, take a deep breath and reassess the situation. And just that, like, I mean, brief, right? Like you can do this in two minutes or less. And just that slowdown and practicing that slowdown has been shown to be incredibly effective in enabling people, you know, in this case, officers, but anyone really with a racial bias to make a more rational decision, which then reduces the likelihood of violence. And I love that Christopher Flanagan, he also said that, you know, he believes that this kind of de-escalation training will reduce violence up to and including the use of deadly force. I mean, I remember him saying that. And so I think this is essential work for people to learn. And what I what was so cool about the Dr. Stevenson interview, Anna Marie, was that he actually used the techniques on you. Oh, yeah, that was so cool. Wasn't that pretty incredible? Yeah, I I would love for you to tell listeners about that. Yeah, well, it was sort of indescribable. And you were there in the moment. I shared that I experienced an incident of racism, well, months before that sit down with Dr. Stevenson. And it was still really resonating with me, bothering me. I mentioned to him that, uh, that I needed to like, kind of clear that. And he walked me through the process of re-experiencing that moment, recasting it, envisioning it in a different outcome. And so, yeah, I got to use some of those skills right on the spot. Yeah. Well, I thought it was so instructive to watch him do that with you because it like really, for me, it really demonstrated like how to use those skills on a concrete situation. And I think the more that we can make this work like concrete and tangible and specific, the better it is and the easier it is for people to see applications in their own lives. But I'm curious because I I saw that happen, but I haven't followed up with you since about it. Has that impact lasted of like doing that work? Has it kind of dispelled that feeling that you were sitting with? Well, it's funny because I haven't really thought about that moment again. Um, and I guess if I have to sit here and think about that moment of racism that I experienced, yeah, I'm bothered by it, but am I triggered by it anymore? No. So it does really work to to go through those techniques and to practice that. And something else I'd like to you know, share with our listeners is an, another exercise that he taught us. And I'm hoping that listeners will try this at home because I think it could help anyone, whether you're a person of color or if you're an ally and you don't, you want to be anti-racist. Yeah. So yeah, basically he taught us to rehearse uh, racist situations. So think about yourself in an un- uncomfortable racial situation and how you would respond to it even before you're in that situation. Uh, you know, it's sort of like an anti-racist elevator elevator speech that you can just adjust on the fly. And, you know, many of us have been in situations where after the fact, we're like, oh, darn, I wish I said this or that. So it really helps to rehearse. And then you can like, be so empowered in the moment. Yeah. And, you know, I think that like, when you talk about the rehearsing, it makes it just so clear that using these skills isn't something that you can do once and then just be done with it, right? It's like anything else we have to practice. But in in that practicing, I think we really start to feel a sense of interpersonal agency and a sense of what 
is important to us. And it reminds me of, you know, I've had incidents in my life where I've experienced racism directed to other people. And it was like, because I knew I was so clear on my values and so clear on my role that I had no problem stepping in in those situations and saying something and doing something. And I could walk away from that feeling really horrible about the situation, but good about the fact that I had stood for my values. And I think people can only really do that if they practice and yeah. take the time. Yeah. You feel so good with your response because you know it's solid and, and you know, you know that there's pop, you're in a moment where you can also help to teach someone else and maybe have them walk away from that moment learning something. Yeah. And I know I love that you talked about teaching someone else and learning something. And I, for me, I learned so much from the listener questions. Like I learned so much from the interviews, but I also learned so much just based on what, what listeners ask us. You know, I've learned so much too from these interviews, but I am curious to know what listeners took away from the episode. So if you're listening and you have a reflection or a question, please call us at 844 888 8148 and leave us a message. Or you can send us a message through our website at demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. And Anna-Marie, something I really want podcast listeners to know about is an offer from our Q&A episode sponsor, Vita Supreme. So this is an unprecedented time in our history. We're in the midst of a global health crisis. People are stressed. Our immunity is low. And so many of us are struggling, whether physically, mentally, or emotionally. So it's even more important than ever to prioritize health, which is where Vita Supreme comes in. They are an incredible company, and their mission is to help people look great and feel amazing. And Vita Supreme is offering Demystifying Diversity podcast listeners 20 20% off on all of their products. The company believes that health radiates from the inside out and their supplements are awesome. I've been using them and I cannot recommend them enough. So Vita Supreme has put together a special Demystifying Diversity podcast listener page where you can get any or all of my three favorite supplements, my own personal supplement um, profile at vitasupreme.com slash pages diversity, or you can peruse their website and purchase any of their many products. When you're ready to check out, just enter the code diversity to receive 20% off your entire order. That's vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity and enter the code diversity for 20% off. Oh, that's a pretty phenomenal offer. And it's so essential these days to stay healthy. Right? So let's move on to our listener questions, Anna-Marie. I know we had some people call our voicemail. Yeah, absolutely. We actually had a question come in related to episode one about biraciality. So let's start there before moving on to the questions from this episode. Hi, Darylise. Uh, my name is Heidi. I'm calling from New York. And I was just calling in um, to ask you a question about I grew actually. I grew up with a Chinese mom and a, a white father, and it, we certainly saw uh, discrimination and felt it, especially toward her. And my question is: is how is that? You know, my experience any different from yours? Um, being also a mixed race, so I was just curious how your experience might be different um, growing up with an Asian parent and a white parent. Um, 
Thank you so much. That's it. Have a great day. Take care. Bye-bye. Heidi, thank you so much for that question. And I have to say, I'm really sorry to hear that your mom faced that kind of discrimination. Before I can provide a general answer to your question, I just want to say that I can't possibly know what it was, what your experience of biraciality was like, or what anyone else's experience was like without really getting to know them. And even then, I think it can be really hard to step into another person's shoes and to like have true, authentic knowledge of what they went through. So I would imagine that as a person who's Asian and white, your experience would be different than someone else with even that same racial background. But that disclaimer out of the way, I want to say that in episode one, Anna Marie and I opted to focus on the Black-white biracial experience because we really wanted to talk about the specific issues of biraciality when it comes to a nation where we can still see and feel the ramifications of slavery. And so, you know, and we talked a little bit in that episode about the history of biracial children and how white slaveholders would rape their black slaves. And so, you know, there's that history that we really focused on. And but I will say that throughout the interviews that I conducted, and actually in next week's episode, you'll hear the voices of Cinder Cuss and Jonathan Quinard, both of whom are racially half white and half Asian, speaking about their experiences, and both of them had very different experiences. But, you know, it does seem to be that there's a lot of research and some work that's come out by various organizations, including Psychology Today, that show that there is um, somewhat of a difference in terms of how minority communities perceive biracial individuals and and it would seem that according to the research and statistics that Asian Americans tend to see Asian white biracial Asians as less Asian and more white. And that's something that's very, very different than for black white biracial people who tend to be included and incorporated more into black societies. But in terms of external societal like perceptions from majority culture and like sort of white heteronormative um, supremacist uh, perspectives, like it, you know, it does seem that the same one drop rule that applies to black, white, biracial people tends to be applied to Asian, white, biracial people. Um, And, you know, I hope that at some point in the future, we can explore these things more deeply because it, it is, it's, it's very complex. And I think there are differences in experiences and perceptions, but I don't know that we can make sweeping generalities about those differences because it's so nuanced and so personal. And I think that this might be something to explore in future episodes. Yeah, I think so too. Um, But in the meantime, I'm big on offering resources. And there's a really great website called Mixed Race Faces. And listeners can go and read the stories. And Heidi, you know, if you want to go and read those stories, it's all about the personal narratives of so many multi-ethnic individuals um, who talk about, you know, their backgrounds and their unique experiences. And you can find people whose stories just mirror your own and who you can relate to. And it's such a beautiful source of representation. Oh my gosh. I follow Mixed Race Spaces on Instagram. I totally think people should check it out. It's so cool to see all the different races and ethnic mixes that are out there. Um, Everyone is so beautiful. 
Yeah, totally. And like their Instagram page is amazing. And then uh, the website like has a more in-depth exploration. So I've gotten lost on their site for hours. <laughs> um, so yeah, definitely for Heidi and anyone else looking to discover other stories of biraciality, check out mixedracefaces.com. Well, here's our first question related to last week's episode, Black and Blue, and exploration of inequities in a broken criminal justice system. It's from an unidentified caller. Hi, I just have a quick question or two. So on the subject of the justice system and disproportionate um, impacts, things like that, criminal justice, I was going to ask, how can people who experience discrimination overcome the problems and disallow these issues from defying them? Like, how does someone experiencing this discrimination transcend their perpetrator and move beyond their problems? So, thank you. I think this question is a really important one, and it's one that doesn't have an easy answer. Because when we're talking about something like perpetration, and when we're talking about how someone has been disadvantaged by the system... There's such a spectrum of experience. So, for instance, someone who might have been racially profiled or the victim of police brutality or arrested for a petty crime, like their situation might have a lingering impact and they might need tools for trauma healing and therapy and a number of things that I think can be really effective. Um, But also, I should say, a lot of these tools and these resources can be cost prohibitive and unavailable to people in poorer communities. So I think that that there definitely are things that can be done. But one, so one of my favorite, my own personal favorite podcasts is Serial. And in season three of the Serial podcast, they talk about how being a a victim of police brutality can really have lifelong ramifications for someone. But for the listener who asked this question, let's assume that an incident occurred and it's a one-time incident and a person is aware that it's impacting them. Well, there are tons of organizations out there that are doing really, well, maybe not tons, but there are organizations out there that are doing really good work and that are providing resources for individuals and families that have experienced police brutality. So for example, there's the Anti-Police Terror Project Project, and there's the Association of Black Psychologists, which in addition to supporting people who have been traumatized by the systemic racism that can be visited on individuals of color by police, like they also just have incredible offerings and resources for people of color because they know that there are different challenges that are faced by these communities, right? And so something that they have is the emotional emancipation circles, and they just have just a lot of really good resources. So there are resources out there that if someone has been personally impacted by these issues, either as a victim, a witness, or a family member, they can get support and they can find a sense of personal empowerment in the wake of a horrible situation. And I think Dr. Stevenson's work does a lot of this. But The other side of the question that the listener asked is that, you know, the question sort of presupposes that the experience is over, right, Anna-Marie? Like that, okay, this thing happened and like, how do you deal with the trauma and how do you find a sense of empowerment? But for many people, that is not the case. Something happens and it's traumatic, but then they're caught up in the justice system for decades or and they're incarcerated over and over again. Or maybe in the case of gun violence, like 
it can be fatal, right? Like there, sometimes there is no moving forward. And, and so I think, you know, it's, it's really hard to look at this question. I think if a person is able and available to find the resources to move through a terrible situation, like I think that's so important and it's so empowering. And I would hope that many people are able to do that. And there are many incredibly resilient people who do that. People like Sabrina Fulton, the mother of Trayvon Martin, you know, she became a social justice advocate and political figure after the death of her son, the senseless death of her son. She certainly found her agency a sense of purpose through that. Yeah, she totally did. But I'm sure that, you know, in terms of moving beyond what happened and in terms of like, I mean, I'm sure that she would forfeit that agency any day to have her son back, right? Like, so, and I don't know that, that you really do recover from that sort of loss. So I think... Uh, yeah, empowerment is important and seeking support is important. But my hope would be that we can create better systems to prevent against this sort of trauma so that people aren't asked to overcome things that they should never have to overcome. Yeah, very good. I, I'm glad that you gave a lot of resources as to where people can tap into to uh, find some help with that. But we have another question. Hello, my name is Diana and I live in Bryn Mawr. I'm a Hispanic woman and my husband is a black man. And together we have two small boys who are naturally half black and half Hispanic. And I have two questions. The first is what recruiting and hiring efforts are being done by the Radnor Police Department to ensure that my children grow up in a town where police officers look like them? My second question is also about the Radnor Police Department, and it is what efforts is the Radnor Police Department doing to create a true community police department, one that includes interacting with residents while officers are both in and out of uniform, easing the fears of minority young adults, high school students, young college students, as well as their parents, also making lasting connections with community members. In other words, How is the Radnor Police Department being a leader in easing the very real tensions that currently exist between police and black and brown residents? Thank you. Have a great day. Wow. All right. Well, Anna Marie, you know, I know that I typically field these questions, but because Diana's question was so specific, and thank you, Diana, for your question but it's really pertains to the interview that you had with Christopher Flanagan and to the town in which you live. So I think, Anna-Marie, that you should be the one to answer this question. So thank you for that, Darylise. I would love to answer Diana's questions. And I did have an opportunity to reach out to Radnor Police Department Superintendent Christopher Flanagan to get detailed answers to Diana's questions. I'd like the listeners to know that, you know, if if they're not in Pennsylvania, (laughs) they're around the world or in other states that Radnor is 20 minutes west of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So anyway, Superintendent Flanagan was kind enough to respond quickly and thoughtfully. And I'd like to read you a direct statement. And I quote, I want to stress that township and police department in particular are committed to a diverse workforce. Unfortunately, the hiring of township police officers is controlled by state law which mandates a competitive screening process whereby all applicants during each hiring cycle are ranked on a list based upon test scores. Moreover, 
please keep in mind that federal and state laws prohibit the township from considering race, religion, gender, and so forth when making hiring decisions, end of quote. So Superintendent Flanagan went on to say that Radnor's Civil Service Commission only considers the highest ranked candidates based on rigorous test scores when deciding who to appoint. And I know that many Radnor citizens are concerned about bias and prejudices when it comes to hiring officers, and I'm concerned about this too. So I looked into it. So what I found out was that the Civil Service Commission is comprised of citizens from different ethnic and religious backgrounds, which made me feel better. Um, it personally makes me feel better to know that the board isn't homogenous. And Flanagan also told me that the Radnor Township requires an applicant to have entered or completed the PA Police Academy. As a result, the Department and Township's Police Civil Service Commission has taken steps to solicit as many minority applicants as possible. Um, and they're doing this in many, many ways because, you know, really, in the beginning, they were really counting on the county uh, pool of recruits, and that was basically from the two Delaware community colleges. But right now, they're also looking into um, advertising with the Philadelphia Tribune. They have, um, and I have seen this, this around town, electronic signage boards. They are on philly.com. Uh, printed edition of the Philadelphia Inquirer, Monster.com, DiscoverPolice.com, Police One, Max Recruit. Um, what else did he say? Oh, and also this is important. Uh, the NAACP of the main line. They're looking there as well as various churches in the area. Um, what's really exciting to note, however, is that the Senior Department of Officers has been granted access to cadets at two nearby Pennsylvania police training academies. And during their training cycles, they can look into pursuing personalized recruitment of minority candidates. Um, I do have one more quote from Christopher Flanagan. He states, and I quote, while I've identified the step we have taken to increase the number of minority candidates to apply for a job with Radnor Township Police Department, if there is more we can do, we will do it. We are happy to listen to any ideas or suggestions from community members or listeners of the Demystifying Diversity podcast, if they would like to contribute. And he also says you can find his email and his uh, phone number on the Radnor Township website, which is simply radnor.com. So, wow, that's amazing. So he's like willing to talk to people from the community about these issues? Oh, absolutely. And even on the website. I looked into the website and there are places for community members to write in and to make suggestions on recruitment, on, you know, um, civic engagement, whatever it is, like they are inviting people. And what I'd like to share with Diana is that I think that he understands the importance of representation of diverse officers and how this can really help to strengthen trust and improving policing in our community. It does seem to me, though, that the country, the, the county pool that he has to pull from to choose from is pretty homogenous. And that's why he's going a step further and soliciting from other websites. And I know that it's important to Christopher Flanagan that he and his officers are in schools to get to know Radnor youth and for the youth to get to know them for two very important reasons. The first one he shared with me is to build ease and trust between the two communities. And number two, 
Studies show that relationship building between police and youth helps to make communities safer. It is his hope that the Radnor youth will get to know him and his officers, and this will build connections and trust as they become teenagers and eventually adults. And I have another direct statement from Superintendent Flanagan. Here it goes. And I quote, at present, the department does not have any officers dedicated to community affairs activities. While our township has grown and the demands for public safety services has increased in the in the past 10 years, the number of sworn officers has shrunk from 52 to 43. At this time, we simply lack the manpower to assign one or more officers in a meaningful way for community services. Both the township and the department recognize that we should do more in the area of community engagement, but at present, we are at a loss for how the goal can be accomplished with our current staffing levels. We would welcome an ongoing dialogue with Radnor Rise and other community groups to strategize and develop events and programs for our officers to engage more with youth of our community. By working together, maybe we can find a solution. End of quote. So, I mean, I really think that we're all in agreement, Diana, and everyone listening, that more can be done to ease tensions in our community. And I also think it's worth noting that in 2016, U.S. Equal Opportunity Commission and the DOJ, Department of Justice, joined forces to create the Advancing Diversity in Law Enforcement Initiative and began diversity dialogue with U.S. state attorneys around the country in hopes of creating more diversity on police forces per state. But it doesn't look like those initiatives have carried over to the current administration. So it's truly up to each individual police agency to hire officers that look like the myriad of citizens that are sworn to serve and protect. Thank you so much, Anna-Marie, for that comprehensive and valuable answer. And again, to Diana for asking that question. And I love the specificity of it because I think then you were able to provide really like concrete information and resources. So yeah, thank you so much. Oh, yeah. Well, we have another question, this one from a family as opposed to a single listener. So I really love this one. Hi, we're the Batra family, and we were wondering if you could please explain exactly what's meant by the term defunding the police. It almost sounds as if the police system would be dismantled altogether, and as a resident of a city that's otherwise quiet and safe, I wonder what implications that would have. So we would love if you could please explain a little what that means, and if you maybe even have any examples to share of cities that have gone uh, undergone such restructuring, how do they fare in terms of rates of various types of crime? As someone who lives in a township where, by and large, the police seem to do a good job of keeping residents safe, we would love if you could clarify what that means, or maybe it's just an inaccurate name for something more complex. Thank you. I'm so glad you all asked that question. And I love, yeah, as Anna-Marie said, that it comes from a family. So I just, maybe I'm making this up, but I'm making up that you all are talking about these issues as a family. And I think that is so, so important. And maybe listening together and sharing about your experiences and reactions to the podcast. So I think a lot of people wonder actually what defunding the police means, right? And like most of my answers, (laughs) I think I I tend not to have just like a 
a real easy and simple and simplistic answer because defunding the police, there's actually tends to be a spectrum of perspectives on what that would look like and what that would mean and kind of answer part of your question, which was about how it's going in certain communities. There are a lot of communities actually that are are doing this work and defunding the police in various ways, like Minneapolis, Baltimore, Seattle, Portland, Hartford, and Philadelphia, where Anna Marie and I both live, and and so and others and other areas of the country, this is going on as well. And so, in these municipalities, in these cities, what's happening is that money and resources that were earmarked to be spent on police departments, money was reallocated for other initiatives. So, for example, affordable housing or social services or mental health care or other things that directly and positively impact communities. And, you know, you asked about the results of these efforts, and I think it would be irresponsible of us to speak about that right now, because here we are at the beginning of this movement to reallocate resources and to kind of reconceive of and reconceptualize what police are are supposed to be doing for the community, right? Um, so we're like really at the beginning of that movement. And we're also in the middle of a global pandemic. And so assessing things like crime statistics and public welfare is really hard right now anyway. But it's also premature to evaluate how these policies are turning out and how they're impacting communities. But what I can say is that when it comes to advocacy to defund the police, defunding isn't necessarily the same thing as disbanding. So there are some people who want to just completely do away with law enforcement. They're like, we, you know, we've had enough with the brutality, enough law enforcement isn't isn't working. And so let's just do away with it. But most advocates for defunding the police don't tend to feel that way, right? There's like a whole spectrum of of perspectives. And some supporters of defunding the police want to allocate some, but not all funds away from police departments to social services and to just simply reduce the amount of police contact with the public in order to reduce the likelihood of police violence. And also like by giving money to these various communities, hopefully the, the thought is, is that the communities will begin to revitalize. They'll start to kind of get the resources within themselves to create a different model of public safety that's more community led. So the concept of defunding the police exists on a spectrum and defunding and disbanding aren't synonymous, but they are interconnected. And so I guess just overall what what advocates of defunding the police want to do is they really want people to reimagine what public safety looks like and shift resources away from law enforcement towards the community. And I, I really think that Salam Muhammad's interview touched on this and that his words really um, encapsulated uh, and encapsulate this idea of reimagining what the police force is and who it serves and what the community is and whether like and kind of how how do we empower communities to create safety within themselves absolutely and thank you for that thorough explanation because i think the phrase defunding the police can be so easily misconstrued we have another lister question hi my name is sandra reum um, and i'd love to hear a discussion about the prisons. So we know that the racial makeup of the prisons in this country um, look substantially different from the demographics of this country. 
with black Americans representing, I think, more than a third of the prison population, which is really triple their numbers in the U.S. population. So I'd love to hear a discussion about how we can focus our efforts on reforming the justice system. I know law enforcement is one arm and the bias and discrimination, but what about the justice system? Is this Does this mean insisting on a jury of our peers? Are there other reform measures that won't discriminate and target black men and women unfairly imprisoning them? I think that's a great question, Sandra. And as you point out, yes, the percentage of incarcerated black and brown Americans is way too high and it's disproportionate. And that is, that's incredibly problematic. And speaking with Senator Street, it was really illuminating because I think the absolute first step is to do away with prosecuting petty, low-level crimes, right? So if people get caught smoking marijuana or, um, you know, I don't know, maybe have like a couple of parking violations or something, like we cannot put people into a system of criminality and and punishment based on these minor infractions that then have lasting ramifications for their life. And we also can't make it so that money buys a way out of these low-level issues because what that means is that then we're going to continue to prosecute people with economic means differently than we prosecute people who don't have economic means. And I think if we really started to incentivize it for people who have economic means to like, hey, the system isn't fair and you can't buy your way out of this, I think people would would really start to get behind criminal justice reform in a very real way. But because the criminal justice system is something that doesn't tend to touch these more wealthy communities, like they we're not, it doesn't seem like we have enough people rallying to change these, these systems. So I would say that the first step is to really stop prosecuting these petty lo- low level crimes and to also stop incentivizing wealth. And certainly to reform the cash bail system, which is just so, so unfair. And also to like overhaul the probation system, because I don't know about you, Anna Marie, but like if some, if my life were under scrutiny, I'm sure that I don't do things perfectly all the time. Like, and I'm sure, and just knowing my own personal, like kind of makeup, like I, I would, it would be so hard for me to feel as if every move that I was making was like scrutinized and there was just no way that I could win. And so I think like really changing the probation system, changing the way that people are able to buy themselves out of crimes, changing the cash bail system. It's just really essential to reconfigure the entire penal system so that we stop rewarding wealth and disadvantaging poverty. Absolutely. Um, And I love your perception about um, how the rules may not, I guess people who are wealthy feel that the rules may not apply to them because it's so easily easy for them to get out of a situation. Yeah. Well, the rules don't apply to them, right? <laughs> like that's that's the point. But if they did, then they would have more of a stake. They would be more of a stakeholder in changing the laws. So I think that that's such a great outlook on this. Yeah, totally. And also, I mean, I think like we look at the resources that people have based on money. Like if someone is I'm not saying public defenders don't do a good job. I think they do. I think many, many public defenders care deeply and are invested in the health and the well-being of their clients and they want to do good work in the world. But the problem, too, with public defenders and 
court-appointed lawyers is that they have such a high incentive to plead out cases. They have such a high caseload, right? They're not able to develop personal relationships with their clients. And so just by that alone, Anna Marie, I mean, if someone gets arrested of a criminal offense and they have a public defender versus a private attorney, like you're getting so much more time with your attorney if you're paying for that person out of pocket. You can, the attorney has more resources to go and investigate your innocence, to follow up on leads, and they're not beholden to the court because they're not court appointed. So they're not going to piss the court off if they start a little trouble or they speak out or they say, you know what, I'm not willing to plead this case out. So I think these things can't be economically based or they're just going to continue to lead to more and more criminalization of poverty and more and more economic disparity. So true. Well, here's another question from a listener in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Hi, Sarah Lee. Um, this is Amy calling from Hershey, Pennsylvania. I wanted to thank you first for the podcast that you are doing and the information that you're providing. It's certainly so relevant and helpful um, in light of the current events that are going on. And I think we all have a lot of questions about what we can do individually and as a community um, to be able to help to make a difference. And a question that I had after listening to your episode was um, about the intersection of race, poverty, and the legal system, and what kinds of things can be done to ensure that these cycles aren't repeated. I thought it would be really helpful if you had some of your thoughts and examples that would help clarify that for us um, and help us to be more aware and be more intentional um, in interactions that we have. All right, thank you so much. Yeah, Amy, I think that question is really important. And I think we touched on it a little bit in the earlier answer, but I definitely want to go more in depth into this because I I think that we can't emphasize enough that the systemic impact of racism is deeply interconnected to economics. So in the episode, we talked about how um, Senator Sharif Street's example, he had a friend who was a security officer, and that friend and his girlfriend got pregnant and had a baby. And the girlfriend, like, understandably, it's hard to raise a baby. It's hard if you have money, and it's hard if you don't. And these people didn't. And so the girlfriend was advised to go and get some public assistance. And so she did. And and um, and the public assistance office never asked her if it was like, you know, if the dad was in the picture or anything. They just assumed, I guess, right? More stereotyping, more bias. They just assumed that, oh, like the dad's not in the picture and this is a single woman and, you know, like whatever. And um, and so she followed the advice that was given to her by the public assistance office, collected benefits, and then they came around and realized that the dad was in the picture and had been contributing. And they either said, you know what, like either you have to pay us back or you're going to go to jail. Obviously, she couldn't. It's not like she had a ton of money. She used that money on her kid, right? So she couldn't pay back. And the dad ended up going to jail because one of them was going to have to go to jail to pay for the crime of like welfare fraud, which they didn't even, I mean, it was basically a clerical error, right? And so I think these are the kinds of things that we have to start scrutinizing and really understanding that the criminalization of poverty 
creates more poverty. And we can't tell people that they're that they have access to resources and then not give them the ability to like understand, right? Like the the fine print on on these sort of contracts. Like I, she didn't know if she had known, she wouldn't have collected the money or she would have like declared the the child support that she was getting from the dad. Like it's just it's so sad that essentially these people's lives were upset because of a clerical error. Right. And not to mention that the father, who was a security officer after he served time, could not get a job again as a security officer. So there's the, uh, you know, like just the ongoing effect of this kind of situation. Yeah, totally. And like for I think he was in jail for about nine months. So they lost all of that income that he could have, you know, uh, for that time. And so, yeah, and all his bills accrued and then suddenly they're more behind and they were just trying to like find a way to provide for their child. So I, I think, you know, in terms of the listener question, Amy, I'm so glad that you asked that question, because I think if we make it an issue of just race, or just poverty, we're missing out on the fact that there is such an interconnectedness of of these issues and that there are, you know, there are people of color who have economic means who don't deal with these same kind of pressures or, or these same kind of persecutions. And then society points to these examples and says, like, well, see, like, you know, like this as if it's evidence that somehow racism is a thing of the past. And it's like, no, it's, racism is still alive and well but it's it also can be very complicated and and it can be that there's where where race and economics intersect are actually tend to be the communities that are most disadvantaged by the impact of systemic oppression yeah we actually have two questions that were sent in by email from Sabrina Suarez i'm going to read you the first one and let you answer that before we move on to the next sabrina asks what is Black Lives Matter really? Is it an organization or a movement? Oh, wow. That's a phenomenal question, Sabrina. And I'll say that it's both. It's not an either or proposition. So just for a little bit of background on BLM, Black Lives Matter, in 2013, Trayvon Martin, who I mentioned earlier, his murderer was acquitted of the crime of murdering a 17-year-old African-American teen as he was walking home in a Florida residential development. So Trayvon Martin was murdered and his murderer was acquitted. And after that, the Black Lives Matter hashtag just it essentially like it went viral. It went all throughout social media. And also three radical black organizers, Alicia Garza, Patrice Cullors, and Opal Tometi founded the Black Lives Matter Foundation. So these two things were sort of happening simultaneously in parallel process. And as a foundation, Black Lives Matter has become now a global organization and their stated mission, which I'll sort of paraphrase a little bit, but their stated mission is to eradicate white supremacy and build local power to intervene in violence inflicted on Black communities. And they do that, the foundation says, by combating and countering acts of violence, creating space for Black imagination and innovation, and centering Black joy. 
So at the same time that the foundation was being founded, there was also, as I mentioned, just the swell of social justice activism and the global hashtag Black Lives Matter. But they're not the same thing. There are overlapping interests. There's connections between the Black Lives Matter movement and the Black Lives Matter movement foundation, but they're not the same thing. Um, And essentially with the Black Lives Matter movement, what I think is really important is that the foundation was founded in 2013, but really it wasn't until after the murder of George Floyd by police officer Derek Chauvin that we just saw like such a swell of support for BLM as a movement. And it's estimated that 26 million people participated in Black Lives Matter protests in 2020, making BLM one of the largest social justice movements in U.S. history. And I think it's important not to conflate the organization with the movement because there are some individuals and organizations that have come out that don't support the foundation, but that do support the Black Lives Matter movement. And I don't think we have the time or the space to really delve more deeply into that issue. That could be an episode in and of itself. But Sabrina, yeah, I think it's a very important question. And it is both a foundation and it's a movement. And both are very important. Well, Sabrina's second question is, the idea of changing systemic racism can be overwhelming. Where should we start? Wow. Um, Gosh, uh, that's, yeah, I think that's an essential question. And I don't think there is one answer. But as, as individuals, as people, I think what you're doing, Sabrina, and what listeners are doing is essential, right? So we all need to educate ourselves to educate each other, to ask meaningful questions and create more empathy. So I think that's a first step for where we can start as people. But In terms of where we can start as a society, I think we really have to go back to what Paul Reese said in this episode, which was really poignant. They said, the only thing we can do to change people is to create structure that encourages the right type of behavior. And they went on to say, if you really want to change the heart of racism, you have to change the heart of a person. That's the thing. You can't change anyone's heart, especially with an argument. So I think to Paul's point, which is also um, something that I've thought a lot about, I think about every day as I do this work, is that while we're waiting for hearts to change, we really have to make it more advantageous to be anti-racist than to be racist. Because it's not just enough to say that Black Lives Matter. Like We have to actually create a system that stops disadvantaging Black individuals. Fairlise, you're so right. It's going to take constructive action, people's hearts and minds to change for anti-racism work to really start happening. And what I love about your book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity, is that you have a workbook that goes along with this and supports that type of work and change. So you have real practical exercises and activities that will support a person in taking meaningful action. Thank you for creating this. Yeah, thank you so much. I And I hope that people will, you know, buy a copy of the book and the workbook because that, for me, that was the whole point of, of writing it was to take it from theory to practice and really allow people to take concrete actions to, you know, to just make the world 
better and safer for so many disadvantaged communities. Totally. Well, this is such a heavy subject, but we have something fun ahead right now. Before we leave and say goodbye, let's make sure to do our Demystifying Diversity t-shirt giveaway. So during each question and answer episode, we're going to select a name at random from all the subscribers to our newsletter and all the callers and people who emailed with questions. This week, the name we picked is Ray Warner. (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. Congrats, Ray. We'll be contacting Ray to arrange to send out a free t-shirt as a big thank you for being a Demystifying Diversity podcast listener. Ray called in during our Q&A last episode. And if you want to be eligible to win a t-shirt, you can call us and ask a question or subscribe to our our email list at demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. Congratulations, Ray, on the free shirt. And thanks for calling in and for listening. And thank you as well to all the listeners for joining us for this Q&A episode. Yeah, thank you, everyone. And just to let you know, each episode of the Demystifying Diversity podcast is written, reported, and produced by Darylise Lyons. Yes, with the invaluable assistance of Anna Marie Jones, reporter, producer, and co-collaborator, Paul Kondo, assistant producer and editor, Raina Epstein, creative assistant, Sunny Taylor, content editor and creative collaborator, Zach James, marketing manager, and Monica Lynn, graphic designer. Our Q&A episode song is Locale by Speakeasy with permission from Blue Dot Studios. And if you haven't already, please subscribe. And if you'd like to join in on the conversation, visit demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com or call 844-888-8148 and leave us a message. And if you'd like to explore any of these topics outside of the podcast, pick up a copy of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity by Darylise Lyons. Thank you again to everyone for listening. Join us next week for our next episode, Asian Studies, an examination of how the model minority myth has contributed to the virus of hate afflicting Asians in America. And in the meantime, let's practice empathy and work together to create a more inclusive world.